Hello, and welcome to Patch Notes. Uh, this is episode seven of the uh, weekly news and views show about gaming industry um, happenings and goings on uh, on the No Cartridge um, web channel, let's call it. Uh, I'm Jonathan, the host of this week, because Trev has abandoned us to the upper Midwest. Um, he'll be back next week, of course. And with me today is Liv. Hello. Yeah, I'm so excited to be on Patch Notes. I love the idea that I'm like traveling across the the podcast to a the no a cartridge brand community. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm so excited that I was entrusted to talk about more than feelings, which <laughs> is a surprise uh, to me foremost. So, if you do the you do the after dark, um, uh, what are the the recordings? They're they're on the Patreon, right? Yeah, yeah, mostly mostly just after dark. A couple of main podcast things, but mostly um, just there to talk about feelings, talk about gaming feelings. <laughs> so yeah, it's just us. We're flying solo this week without um, the boss hanging around, cramping our style. Um, but there there is a lot of talk about, so we probably should just get into it. Um, oh yeah, sure. Starting I mean, with let's start yep. with Yeek. Yik. Yike. Uh, Y-I-I-K. The game known as um, one of those three pronunciations. Or maybe it's supposed to be Y2K? Yeah, I truly do not know what the pronunciation is. It could be any of those. I know that more people call it yikes. Uh, <laughs> more than anything. Yeah, the um, and this game came out uh, a while ago. I, I, I've never played it. Uh, I never intend to play it. Um, it is a an independent release by uh, Ack Studios, um, which I believe is like a one-person studio. And we'll be talking about the one person in that studio. Um, and it, it, is, uh, it has a subtitle, A Postmodern RPG. Um, and I believe it's on Steam. We're not really going to advertise it here, which will be obvious when we get to the substance of the conversation. Uh, but it was released... Um, Earlier this year, officially, um, across a number of platforms, it apparently has a Vita release. Hmm. Which is... News to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Y2K, or Yikes, was in the news when it came out um, for a number of reasons. And Liv, you probably remember a little bit more about those than I do. Yeah, there was... Um, mostly people didn't really like how... I think women were represented mm -hmm. in the game or generally like the, like, I don't think that it's necessarily that there was a, a toxic man. That's the problem. I think that it's that there was a toxic man making this game. And then mm. it was the only viewpoint in this game. And like from the developer's viewpoint, it was that he learns throughout the game. And then, the, so it's okay. But there was also like real life instances of, uh, like a woman who had committed suicide and it was represented in the game and like yeah. didn't really feel like it was represented in any sort of respectful way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's like a, a real issue um, that you don't really have respect towards other people in this game. Like, I think that it's a fair idea that you have someone who's toxic and then like gains knowledge throughout mm -hmm. the game and then like maybe they get better, but yeah, uh, I feel like you have to, 
if you are so closely, because it feels like the, the game was was a three person game. I'm sorry, it was uh, Brian Allenson was the lead designer and developer, um, and he's the person I believe we'll mostly be talking about here. He had uh, Ian ba- a man named Ian Bailey was a co designer, and then Andrew Allenson was composed the music. So most of the art was done by Brian Allenson, the design, the programming. Um, so it, this is this seems like his game. Uh, and when the criticism came out about this game um, post-release, this is when I started seeing parts of it because I had no interest in the game as as the game itself. But he reacted very badly to the um, to the criticism. Um, let me see if I can find part of that here. Yeah, there was the suicide thing. There was. Um, there was uh, stuff about just just an overall lack of introspection in the storytelling, like craft problems. Not mm-hmm. this person's a bad person because he made this game, but because the game itself suffered um, from a lack of good craft. And obviously, you don't want to you don't want to get on people's backs too much about the art not being great or the you know stuff like that when it's a it's a passion project like mm-hmm. this. But you know you can make craft arguments. And the and the thing that you get is you, you allow you know you make allowances for um, art that isn't you know up to AAA level and design that isn't up to AAA level and that is you know mainly uh, old older concepts older RPG concepts being used in a new way because what you get in response is a creative vision from the from the creator. Uh, an auteur's vision of what they're creating with the game. You can do really good stuff with very basic art and very basic design in a video game. Uh, and now we've got this story out of Kotaku this week that he plagiarized parts of the game. Yeah, so um, it looks like there was just like a a passage just uh, straight ripped from like a Haruki Murakami novel, mm-hmm. which I think, I don't know, we can talk about this. Like, yeah. what do you feel about this? Like, I feel like... Uh, to some extent like it is okay to reference but mm-hmm. just that there was these other problems in the game well that made it so it didn't really feel comfortable you know like yeah. didn't really feel comfortable with how it was used or felt like it was um i don't know regardless Maybe. of the artistic um impulse to pastiche or homage or all, any of that stuff if you're going to use words wholesale from another source you have to cite you have to have in the credits that sections were from Murakami, you should have in the work itself an acknowledgement and an analysis of that text as being from a Murakami novel. Like the characters should be acknowledging that they are saying words or reciting passages from a Murakami book. Because uh, that's, that's, how, that's how this sort of thing works. You, you, you bring an outside text into your world and then you synthesize it. You produce something new out of it. You don't just borrow another creator's words to express concepts as a shorthand just because they work better. I mean, that's, you know, there is a blind, there's like, there there are gray areas with any creative endeavor like this. I know when I've been writing before, I found myself accidentally using a line or two from a from a, uh, a TV show I know, and I'll, I'll see that and I'll recognize that on my second pass and I'll go and I change it to something else uh, because, I, I've realized that I'm taking words from somebody else. But we're talking about like a one-line sentence here, basic concepts, not paragraphs and paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I don't have, I don't think there's much leeway to what this is. And, and the studio has acknowledged this. They've said that they're updating the credits to include a works cited section, which makes it sound like, you know, they simply forgot a footnote on their history paper and not that they wholesale took someone's work and represented it as their own, which it seems to be what they did. Um, I'm looking at these screenshots, and none of this is in quotation marks. Parts of it have been changed and ordered so that you don't – so that if you just copied and pasted the text and did like a Google search for it, Murakami wouldn't come up because he changed mm-hmm. the order of the sentence. Um, and especially when, when people do that, when they change the order of things as they appear in a sentence so that it goes BA instead of AB and, th- and claim that that's fair use – that's when I begin to think that someone is is not making a good faith mistake. They're trying to get something over. Yeah, it seems more so to me that the original response to it, it's like, well, we just like assumed that these mm-hmm. players would be after dark readers. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I think assumed it's... my audience was intelligent <laughs> enough to know that. Yeah, that uh, this passage was from uh, After Dark by Murakami. Yeah, you know, like. Uh, not like a iconic passage necessarily. Just uh, yeah, it's we, uh, we assumed you'd be able to remember. Uh, it's uh, it's a very interesting um, and it, it, it blows over. And uh, you know, this game in the in the grand scheme of things doesn't really matter all that much. But uh, it does. It's funny because people went back to look at this more because I believe. Uh, one of these brothers, either Brian or Andrew, went on a podcast recently and talked about something about how the world wasn't ready for what they were bringing to the table with uh, <laughs> with Yeek. Um, and I'm not sure how to handle that. That, that I certainly situation. wasn't. Yeah, I, I could. I mean, yeah. Hey, fair <laughs> I enough. I can say for myself, I, I wasn't. I never I wasn't played ready it. I was. It. I was scared away. I was scared. Still away not by ready the, for it. By the ideas behind it, but. Um, this is probably going to be a. This is a. I don't want to say it's going to be a big issue going forward in the community, but as games establish themselves even further uh, as as a form of art, um, and we don't need to get into the whole Ebert debate about art. It's been very well proven what games are, but mm-hmm. you're going to see that level of metatextual interplay increasing, and it's important that developers know how to do that properly and know how to reference that properly. Uh, instead of doing what um, Act Studios did here, which is not the right way to do it. Um, yeah, I think that there's some amount of pastiche that you could uh, argue for, but this is not it. This yeah. is not. Uh, this is not like any sort of thing that is immediately brought to a player's mind about like any sort of iconic scene or passage. It's just, um, yeah, like you said, reordered in a way that's meant to obscure what it is. Yeah, it's and I mean it's not. I don't. I I have not read After Dark personally. I just don't. I don't. I'm not sure. I don't think the the character Proto Woman, who is the character saying all <laughs> right. of these lines. I, I don't know what she is in the story. She looks like Starfire from Teen Titans, except naked, uh, in this art that I'm looking at, um, which is kind of a a, a red flag as well. Um, it looks the 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 screen caps of the lifted material just has her saying passages to the main character as he like grabs his head. Uh, he certainly looks shocked. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's out of context. Maybe he, the very next line is him saying, Oh, you've read the Haruki Murakami novel after dark, but um, that does not seem to be the case. 
No, I don't. I don't think that's it. <laughs> and it's like I've read like a couple of Murakami novels, and mm-hmm. this is not one of them. I don't even think it's like one of the like. Okay, you're gonna recommend Murakami to read to someone. I don't think this is you know like the first one anyone reads. Yeah. Uh, he the the statement that um the act team made about this uh, said they also had more subtle homages to other authors like uh, Chuck uh, Palahanwick. Palha- I think it's Polinick. Polinick. I don't think I've ever had to say that out loud. Uh, Thomas Pynchon, uh, David Mitchell. Um, I'm not sure where those homages are. I'm sure eagle-eyed readers are. At this moment, combing the game script, looking to see if more stuff has been lifted. But um, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's just <laughs> it. I on one hand, I do want this game to kind of go away because it had its minute in the sun of us of the online roasting it, and frankly, it doesn't deserve um, both in a good and bad way to dominate discussion online every time it comes up. You know, people don't need to be turned into targets for Rotten Tomatoes for the entire. Uh, you know, for a year after the game launches or something. But mm-hmm. uh, there does need to be this kind of community response when a developer does plagiarize. And that, you know, goes whether they plagiarize from other games by stealing art assets or from uh, other other disciplines, other media. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting parallel, of course, and I think this would be what they'd raise in their defense uh, with The Witness by Jonathan Blow, which did feature long segments of quoted material and I think film and poetry from obviously from historical authors. But that was all cited and it was not presented as original work. It was presented as you, the char- you, the player, are experiencing this media from another uh, discipline or from another creator that has been put into this world for uh you know metatextual reasons um like you see when you see the movie the movie clips i think he had some tarkovsky in there uh you see it in a movie theater type room Mm -hmm. um it is acknowledging obviously that this is a movie you're watching and clearly it was not made for this game um and i believe everything is properly uh cited and footnoted uh if if not directly uh during the game then certainly during the credits um, and, and really, that's what the big deal with plagiarism is. I mean, you can criticize the witness for leaning so heavily on uh, other people's – on the sh- you know standing on the shoulders of giants that came before. But it's not like the, the central gameplay loop of witnesses' puzzle solving had anything to do with Tarkovsky's films or um, uh, you know Mozart symphonies or anything like that. It, the, the gameplay loop, the game itself was very – specific about what you were doing and was puzzle solving you know pattern recognition that sort of stuff in yeek um the game the game itself is the story like you're telling a a fairly straightforward jrpg type story about person's development if you've got characters saying lines from people that you didn't write you need to cite those lines or you need to make it part of the story why those lines are being said so i mean i think the witness is how you do this properly this isn't yeah, there's no gesture that it's a reference. It just happens. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and it, I, it, from what I recall, things just happening was a was a critique of the game that was released at the time. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, this is the last time this comes up. Hopefully, we've just decided to move past this game. But I think that it's fair 
to talk about like the the idea that like it's branding itself as postmodern and so like it has references but it's not actually referential it's just mm-hmm. lifting yeah i mean postmodern isn't a license to just throw whatever you want in there mm-hmm. um uh, i'm not even sure i'd have to play it to actually see what its take on postmodernism is but i'm fairly certain it doesn't hit any of the academic definitions either um but you know Maybe they'll make a second game. Maybe they'll grow from it and learn from it. Uh, maybe that game will be good. Uh, this game at least did fairly well sales-wise for them, I think. Um, uh, you know, publicity being publicity and all. Uh, so, you know, if they if they come back and they make a good product the next time, most things will be forgiven. Yeah, probably so. Probably so. <laughs> yeah. Now, another thing that... Um, that happened this week, and this has to do with uh, with you know metatextual and movies and games and all that stuff. Is uh, PlayStation announced that they are expanding their their um, production studios for turning their their IPs into games and uh, their game IPs into movies and television shows and stuff like that. Um, so this is from Gama Sutra. Uh, they already, I believe, they already produced like a Ratchet and, Cl- and Clank movie. Or, or game movie thing. Uh, let me see here. It sounds right, but I certainly didn't see it. Yeah, it was it was like in two thousand yeah two thousand sixteen. Um, it was it was uh, produced by Rainmaker in- Entertainment in association with PlayStation Originals. That's what this was called. Uh, this label was called before it became PlayStation Production. Um, and it featured, apparently it featured uh, Paul Giamatti was in there, Sylvester Stallone, uh, Rosario Dawson, who's doing a lot of voice acting work these days. Um, never saw it, really didn't, it sort of, I didn't even remember it was around until this this article came out um, about them trying to do similar stuff with the rest of their properties, which is, you know, hopefully they, they succeed better than that Ratchet and Clank movie did. Yeah, it seems like an interesting choice to do a Ratchet and Clank movie because uh, I don't know that's necessarily anyone that has rabid fans that'll just mm-hmm. show up no matter what. Well, like, I, not that it couldn't be a good story. But yeah, just... it's just that I don't know how strong PlayStation's IP stable is to begin with. Like, the first person... The first party characters they own that are most identified with Sony are, are what? Crash Bandicoot, Spyro the Dragon. I think Crash is still tied up in um, uh, rights disputes with Activision. Um, I think it's Activision who owns parts of Crash. But, it, you know, it's it's Crash, it's Spyro, it's, you know, Ratchet and Clank. Clank. Um, it's, uh, I guess I guess, Uncharted now? All the Uncharted's were were Sony first. Were not they weren't first party. They were, but they did. They were Sony exclusive. But I don't think that Naughty Dog necessarily has Sony owning the rights to those characters. So I'm not not quite sure what you know what properties we're really talking about. With I mean, I mean the the the, the chairman of SEI World Studios, um, which is going to be. Uh, you know, that's the the name of the Sony Interactive Entertainment World Studios, which is running this. Uh, he says you've got 25 years of game development experience, and that's created 25 years of great games, franchises, and stories. But the question has to be, what, which of those do they own, and which of those um, 
do they are they going to be able to license for this as opposed to say Naughty Dog wanting to go to um, Disney if they want to do an Uncharted movie? And the Uncharted movie, we've been hearing teasers about an Uncharted movie for like five years now, and they've never really materialized. Um, but so they've got a couple different core franchises, but they don't really work well together. There's this idea, there's this idea that they want to become like the Disney Marvel movies. They want to have like a cinematic universe. And I just don't see that they have properties that work well enough together with that. Uh, mm -hmm. To pull that off, especially like everybody wants to have a Marvel Cinematic Universe now. It's it's the um, it's like the second or third anniversary of that that dark universe um, being developed, which was all the the Universal Studios monsters, and it was going to have you know Tom Cruise. The Tom Cruise Mummy movie was was one of the big capstones about that, and it went over like a wet fart. And the dark universe has basically never been mentioned again. But everybody wants to turn there their IP farms into these cohesive cinematic universes that have, that everybody feels the need to go and consume one of every six to eight months in a line. Um, uh, and I just don't see that Sony has the, has the roster within itself to do that. Um, well, and just like video game movies in general, like yeah. if, uh, if they could make a single video game movie that people thought was good, then maybe we would yeah. see a, a universe emerge. But um, uh, as much as I am, a, I think, a very vocal fan of uh, the idea that I would like a Warcraft universe, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I think that there should be a Warcraft TV series or miniseries, uh, something other than the movie we got, yeah. um, which I think is probably – one of the franchises that would work best in a TV series. I don't think we're going to get it. I no. don't think it's ever going to go over well, but I think it's what would be most adaptable. So like trying to think of a series that's less adaptable and actually working. I don't, I don't know that we're actually going to get this. Yeah, no, I mean <laughs> what, what they easily could do is a couple of discrete movies. Um, but you know, the team up movie, the Avengers, the theoretical Avengers movie of this, disparate bunch of ips i just don't see how you pitch it um i don't see what the what the hook is you know spyro and crash and whoever crossing over um do they have jackson dexter I mean, I mean that's what that's what comes to mind when when someone starts talking about the disney marvel franchise well yeah i think that they are referencing that as the idea like you said of someone showing up every single year or every six months for one of their movies. I think mm -hmm. that's what they want more than uh, uh, an ensemble movie. I think they just want people showing up for their movies. I think they just want a new way of revenue. And I don't think it's necessarily that they even think that there is any way that their franchises could come together. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, they, I, I, Sony's got the pipeline to do all this. I don't think they'd have to immediately go to like Netflix for distribution or something. Um, the way that you'd think a lot of these sorts of video game movies might have to go to a streaming service like that. Um, but I, I think it's far more likely we see like an Overwatch universe, uh, film and TV universe, before we see much of anything out of Sony. Um, unless I'm completely wrong about what they hold the rights to and they hold the rights to stuff that uh, isn't occurring to me right now. Um, but it's not like they have Metal Gear. It's not like they have... Um, it's not like they have Street Fighter. Those are all company-owned properties just, mm -hmm. that just happen to come out on Sony products from time to time. Um, 
Yeah, anything like Devil May Cry. Or yeah, that's Final uh, Fantasy. Cap, yeah, you know. Square, Capcom, both hold those. Um, so like like the big, it's the problem is the big franchises that are associated with PlayStation aren't first per- party products. Like Nintendo has a much better argument for doing something like this with like Zelda and Mario, uh, mm-hmm. and hell Metroid. Uh, even though Metroid is is mostly a Western phenomenon, I think they could do a pretty good Metroid movie or a, a franchise over in the states. Um, Sony just doesn't have that history of first party products. I think there's just a a video game adaptation problem in general. Like you would like you were mm-hmm. referencing Overwatch. You would think that Blizzard could do it. Blizzard has those franchises like Heroes of the Storm. People, I mean, the people that like Heroes of the Storm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's by any means like the most popular MOBA or anything like that but it's that's what people like about it, is that it's these franchises coming together and that there's some sort of uh, draw from each of them but Sony doesn't have that and Blizzard hasn't been able to adapt that into a video game yeah uh, Trev and I talked about the problems with an Overwatch adaptation either last week or the week before and you know it, it, even if if Blizzard isn't even at the point where they can get more story stuff out there than like a three minute story trailer every six to eight months, um, it's hard to see that the tolerate the tolerance for the executives above PlayStation Productions will be in a place where they're willing to commit a huge amount of money to honestly a, a field of adaptation that has yet to produce a, a solid critical hit. Mm-hmm. I mean. M- Warcraft made a bunch of money, but most of it was overseas, uh, which uh, means less revenue for Sony because it's cut different ways with the uh, local distribution um, syndicates over in China. Uh, and uh, what, what's the other the other big recent video game movie? Is like uh, the it's Assassin's like Creed. Yep. Again, that's Nintendo. I mean, is De- Detective Pichu is actually a game, right? There was a Detective Pikachu game. Yeah, there's a game that no one really played. Uh. So that's that is a very weird thing that because uh, I haven't seen Detective Pikachu yet. But if that is that is the best, uh, and people have been saying it's the best video game movie of X or Y years. The, if that's well, true, based on nobody having played the game that it was based on. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's. I think it's the best rated video game adaptation on Rotten Tomatoes. And like, I think a lot of that is that it doesn't try to get the whole franchise. It tries Mm -hmm. to tell a specific story and people don't really have to play the video game. Like they understand the universe and like there's a wide audience that's invested in this universe that isn't even as niche as, and like the idea that a Warcraft uh, movie would be niche is, you know, it's a whole other thing. Uh, Pokemon just happens to be played by literally everyone, like people who don't consider themselves gamers at all. Yeah. Um, so it has this this audience already built in that doesn't need to have played video games or doesn't have to consider themselves a, a video game player, which I think that you would kind of need to be to even go see something like a Warcraft movie. You would kind yeah. of like have to be okay with the idea of playing video games. And I mean, for at least specifically for Pokemon – for a lot of people, that's a cartoon, not a video game. Right. Like they they yeah. had the, the cartoon. The ma- it was a pretty successful Saturday morning, weekday morning cartoon show over in the States. It was obviously adapted from uh, a Japanese released anime um, with sometimes hilarious results. Um, and plenty of people who collected the cards yeah, without ever the card watching game, the yeah. show or playing the video game or anything. So I, I, I think Detective Pikachu did have a leg up there. 
Um, and before Detective Pikachu, the last big was the last big video game movie really Assassin's Creed. That's the last one that comes to mind. Yeah, that went over like a wet fart too. Um, there, yeah, that movie that was a that was a Christmas release and it disappeared. It feels like by um by you know mid January. Uh, Did you see it? Absolutely not. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, and you would think that, like, if anyone was going to see it, then maybe we would see it. Yeah. But no, you know, like, if I, it didn't appeal to us, then who does it appeal to? Yeah, I mean, and part of it was because they uh, intentionally didn't do a, a video game storyline. It was an entirely new storyline. And it was, um, it, it worked in different ways than the game did, but it worked similarly enough that you could tell there was a difference. Like, the Animus wasn't just a pod, but like a giant 3D, like, grapple chair. Like, mm-hmm. you know, sort of that sort of like, uh, basically it was a, a gussied up version of what they use for a lot of motion capture. Um, for people flying around and whatever. Um, except made look great for a, uh, for a screen. Um, for being in front of the camera as opposed to digitally edited out. Um, and it just did not look interesting. Um, like, maybe if you'd made a story about, uh, what's his name? The guy Nolan North played. Mm. Uh, from the, the protagonist of the first three <laughs> games. Um, like Ezio? I don't no, know. no, the guy who you played in the <laughs> real world when you were playing Ezio. I don't know. I yeah, I, I forget games. his name. Um, I know Kristen Bell was the was the love interest. I know Nolan North was the guy voicing the main character, but I, I forget entirely um, anything about the character himself, which I guess undercuts my argument that the movie should have been about him. But Yeah, I'm uh, not a triple-A triple game player for this reason. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whoever el- the hell it was about, I think, was Gerard Butler the guy who starred in that? Who was, who was or was it Fastbender? It was Fastbender. It was Fastbender. That's how it's movie. Yeah. Um... So yeah, I think that obviously there's there's good places they can go with this. I don't think it's going to turn into anything huge just because I don't think Sony has the has the catalog to turn anything into a major studio hit. Um, mm-hmm. But and a, I don't think that anyone would put the money that would be needed. In, like if they had something, mm-hmm. no one's going to front the money for this if they haven't even shown that a single video game movie could be successful. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I could be completely wrong. Uh, I didn't think Detective Pikachu was going to be a hit, and it's obviously a, a runaway wild hit. And I'm guessing that this news is partly in response to the success of Detective Pikachu. Maybe so. And I think that even like Castlevania, I think Castlevania mm-hmm. did better critically than maybe people were expecting. And I think that that showed that there was something that. That's the, the Netflix series, right? Yeah, the like anime Netflix series. Like, I would love to see an anime Netflix series for maybe like uh, like a Bayonetta or something like mm-hmm. that. And I think it would be successful in that way. I don't think that everything needs to be a cinematic universe. Um, and I think that there's other ways that we could see video game adaptations done more successfully first before yeah. really hoping that that could be done. But that uh, you know they'll do what they do. Um, and, you know, best of luck to them. Maybe some good stuff will come out of it. Uh, we can't go a week, it seems, without talking about – I think we did actually go last week without talking about labor. But we're back talking about labor again this week um, because CD Projekt Red is in the news. 
uh, and most more importantly or more directly, uh, Kotaku's Jason Schreier is in the news as well. He's been the guy on the on the ball when it comes to labor reporting in um, in video games recently. Uh, he's he broke the Never Realm stories. He broke Anthem's labor pr- problems. Uh, I think he he was involved in um, in some other stuff. Uh, oh yeah, he also broke the the Bioware. Um, Dragon Age Four news that was sort of related to the Anthem stuff. So he has he has good sources deep in these companies, and they're starting to realize that they sort of might want to start coming to him with these stories before uh, he starts hearing from like thirty of their disgruntled employees after three months of backbreaking work. Um, so what happened was CD Projekt Red went to Schreier um, over last week uh, to talk about Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven which is the uh, next game coming out from them. Uh, they developed The Witcher 3, of course, and The Witcher games, uh, and they're going to be taking their um, skills to this uh, cyberpunk tabletop RPG, which they're basically taking a tabletop property and they're turning it into their own world. Uh, I don't really believe that it's going to function too much like the actual tabletop game, um, Cyberpunk 2020. I forget what the actual, what the uh, original board games uh, date is. Yes, Cyberpunk 2020. Um, obviously, with the game coming out in 2020, they could not call it Cyberpunk 2020, so they bumped it forward 57 years. Um, and so what happened is they 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 want to get out in front of any any labor stories. So uh, the company's co-founder sat down with Schreier to talk about how they're voluntarily introducing uh, a non-obligatory crunch policy and they're, you know, going to have uh, outreach to their workers to make it understood that people don't need to be working nights and weekends all the time to help meet goals and, you know, all this sort of PR stuff that, um, that you honestly, you do want to hear, but sort of sounds like preempting the discussion by making sure everybody knows that you know this is on the workers if they choose to do too much work that sort of thing um, because we all know what a non-obligatory overtime schedule is like it's not obligatory until you know it com- becomes promotion time or layoff time and then suddenly you know they the management has been paying attention to who's been doing lots and lots of volunteer overtime and who hasn't yeah, and it seems like also that they are expecting a certain amount of crunch period. They're saying there's, you know, like if a game is a certain amount of time that they're planning on, like, yeah. So they're saying like when the production takes five years, for four years, it's super normal. And then mm-hmm. the last year, we have some special rules just for this period, which just sounds like bad planning. Like, yeah. I understand the idea that like, after launch, you're going to have some certain crunch, but why would you plan for like a last year before release to be crunch? It's strange because this seems like it's not just a because CD Projekt Red does reference that that might be the case with this with this project, but every, that seems like an industry standard across the industry. Like Anthem was like, was like that too, where they spent three years in pre production, and then suddenly they had eighteen months to make the game. Uh, and they 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 just had their wheels spinning for three years as they you know planned but made no decisions and reworked mm-hmm. a concept and held meetings and did not make decisions at those meetings that 
they stood by and, you know, had executive turnover and management turnover. Um, and it just doesn't seem like a sustainable way to make a game where you, you know, dither around for a long period of time and then suddenly everyone has to live their job for a year. Um, and I don't think really that – I mean I think that CD Projekt Red would like for – everyone to stay healthy and happy and there not to be any breakdowns. I don't think that's ever anything that a company wants to happen, but this doesn't seem like something that's actually going to fix the underlying structural problems um, behind Crunch, because it's obviously not acceptable for the game just not to get made. Um, right, and I like the idea... I don't like this idea, but I think it's better than not that this developers at least being like oh wait we're not accepting this now like we at least need to acknowledge that this is happening and then like maybe for the next project we'll actually get it to a standard that's okay or that's um healthy but we're going to go ahead and get in front of this uh before it before the workers come to you mm -hmm. and what's what's another alarm bell about this is that cd project red was in the news about a year ago a year and change ago about their anti-union stance. Um, it, this was this came out in 2017. Uh, it was reported by Eurogamer as well as other places. Um, and they were talking... This was after The Witcher's release, after they finished with The Witcher DLC, I believe. Um, and they were talking about... They were doing exit interviews and, and cooling down from that project right before Cyberpunk 77 spun up, uh, uh, you know, in reality, to become the, the studio's number one project. Um and so they, they, they went to the, the media to talk about uh, morale at the studio and that they were responding specifically. They, they cited Glassdoor posts, Glassdoor being the site where you can um, – you as an employee can leave uh, anonymous reviews of a, of a company for other people to look at. Um, as you might imagine, these reviews are usually negative given the way that modern capitalism works and how it treats mm -hmm. its workers. Um, so they were responding to those kinds of posts and other other news stories coming out quoting people who worked at the studio, and their basic response was that we are here doing serious work, and I believe the exact quote was, this approach to making games is not for everyone. It often requires a conscious effort to reinvent the wheel, even if you personally already think it works like a charm. And then they go on for another paragraph about comfort zones and innovation and stuff like that. And there, this was specifically in the context of Cyberpunk 77 spinning up. Um, and when you phrase it like that, it sounds great. Like, oh, we're, we're go-getters, we're hard workers, we're all that. But it's coming from the, like, the co-founder and the studio head, not the people who are actually going to be working the 18-hour days. Right. Um, and... And it also comes in the context of an industry that's making louder and louder noises about unionizing, and they don't want a union. No AAA studio wants a union because that limits their business practices. It changes how they can allocate staff for projects. Like you can't hire a bunch of people then lay them off immediately when the work's done if you have a union. Um, and you know interferes with the sort of top-heavy, let's say, compensation distribution that modern games have where you know the people who th 
the grunt, do the grunt work, make 40K a year with benefits, have to live in expensive cities, and have to reapply for jobs every 24 months, while the studio founders have points on the um, on revenue, they have, you know, royalty percentages that they get off the top, that sort of stuff. Um, but the, the, the allocation of where the money the, the money went for Rockstar's executives on Red Dead Redemption 2 based on, like, the, the actual people who made the game, uh, the split was wildly in the exec- executives' favor. And, and you know, the, 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 the heads of the writing team, who are also executives. Um, mm-hmm. And no one's saying that those, those people who worked on the writing team didn't do work, do, do a lot of work. It's just that they're getting compensated way out of proportion to the rest of the company. Especially when you're seeing mass layoffs in a lot of yeah. companies. And yeah, and once once crunch time is over, you know, the way hiring practices work in the industry, you can just kick people to the curb. I mean, at least with some of the larger super companies like Ubisoft and um, Activision, they have so many studios going that there's always work. So if you're lucky when you're done working on the new Assassin's Creed or the new Watch Dogs or the new Black Ops or the new Call of Duty or whatever – um, you don't get laid off. You get transferred to a new project, and you at least get to keep your job, even if you are basically being, you know, an art asset help for someone else's creative vision the entire time. Because it's a job like anything else. Obviously, not everyone's going to get to be creatively fulfilled at it. But they also sh- they should at least have employment security. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this seems like cyberpunk. 2077 in general seems like a big enough project because it's it's going to straddle the line between the new consoles, the PlayStation 5 and the X, whatever the next Xbox is called, um, and the previous generation. So it's probably going to be a dual release, um, assuming it doesn't get pushed back any, which is still a possibility. But we're in a situation where uh, there's going to be a lot of work on that game. They presented a demo which looked really good, great proof of concept, with about 30 minutes of gameplay and didn't have any of the open world stuff that they they really teased. And it's going to be the open world stuff that causes, you know, drives a lot of that work. And uh, we're going to have a story from Cyberpunk 77 about burnout. That's just how it's going to go. They know it. We know it. They're, they're going to Kotaku about it now because they want it on the record that they were concerned about it before it happened. Uh, so they don't look like Bioware or um, Rockstar or Activision, but it's going to happen regardless because that's just mm-hmm. the, the, the function of the structure that we have in the industry right now. And someone's going to have to – the only way to change it is to, is to unionize. Yeah, and they're already acknowledging that they expect this to happen. Like there's still planned crunch, which mm-hmm. I think is a lot of the problem is there's no reason to plan for crunch. There's a, you know, you need to plan for a timely release. Yeah, and also you just – you could hire more people. I mean, you could still yeah. you could still release on time if you're willing to hire more people. I mean, and, and there is a there is a a a point where there are uh, there's a too many cooks point at some point, obviously. But as long as you have good organization, you know, if it comes to the point where you can't get the game out with a hundred people and you have to go with a fifty person studio because you're not organized well enough to handle a hundred people but you can only ha- organize and handle the 50 people, then you've got a project management problem. You've got mm-hmm. you know PMs who aren't able to do their jobs. You've got a bad workflow. You've got bad scrums. You've got bad, you know, you've got internal processes that need to be resolved because very large companies can produce complicated pieces of software that aren't games, you know, 
like uh, office suites or, you know, complicated programming for CAD or stuff like that without all of this. Like crunch is a problem industry wide. It's bad at Microsoft, too. There have been stories about burnout at Microsoft and Google and all of those tech giants, but they don't have the sort of teeth that these games industry stories have, mainly because you get treated a lot better at Google and Microsoft. Yeah, uh, especially like on like a QA side of things. Like I feel like there's a lot of QA on game devs that aren't really. Oh yeah, QA is... that aren't really like treated like game devs or <laughs> treated like that they are they're treated like interns. Part of <laughs> yeah, like unpaid. Uh, they're paid now. I know that back in the day, QA positions were sometimes unpaid uh, summer internships with dangling the offer of a job for you in front of them after you're done. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you get that job. Most of the times you wouldn't. Um, but a lot of it's still contract work yeah. and that you'll never get a raise. You'll you'll work minimum wage for nine to twelve months and then you know, that's it. No benefits. But right. Um, but yep, that's that's our labor hour, our, our labor fifteen minutes for this week. I am certain we'll be back next week with more because this is a story that <laughs> just is doesn't it doesn't go away. Every week there's something new about this because this is building. Like there the situation that exists in the games industry right now is one that will never find balance until something falls over and breaks. Mm-hmm. And we are running up to something falling over and breaking pretty soon. I mean, it could, I, I guess I can conceive of it possibly going on like this forever, but eventually like just the economy itself is going to crash. Like we're headed towards a long period of economic uncertainty for reasons that have nothing to do with it, with the video games industry itself, but stuff like our moron president starting a trade war with China and, you know, just the, 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 the way finance capital is centralized in the hands of a few key players and uh, housing bubbles coming back and tech bubbles coming back and all that stuff. So there is eventually going to be some sort of reckoning here, and it may not have anything to do with what, how it starts in the game industry itself. But until that time, you know, we're going to have these once a week stories about uh, the cost, the human cost of doing business. Yeah, I think we're seeing the optimistic side of it now. Yeah, this optimistic side of like, well, we expect this to happen, but maybe it'll maybe it'll turn out okay. Yeah, and <laughs> the other side is, well, maybe we just don't get to have AAA video games anymore. And and you know what? Maybe that's what we deserve. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe that's fine. Like, I maybe you don't need the graphical fidelity to be like that for every release. Uh, but yeah, you had a, a, there's a new handheld gaming device out or announced out. Um, yeah, just today. Uh, I believe, I believe it was just today is Playdate, mm-hmm. which is, it looks kind of like those, um, like original, like Game Boy pockets or something like that. Like a, it's, I think they're all this bright orange mm-hmm. color, bright yellow color. And, uh, it looks really cute. It's uh, made by Panic, who published uh, Firewatch, and then like are publishing. I I don't think it has a name. I think it's actually like currently called Untitled uh, Goose Untitled Game, Goose Game <laughs> <laughs> which looks really cute. Um, but it's this new handheld device that has like a black and white screen. So it's kind of nostalgic for like, I think the Game Boy Pocket period. Um, and it's supposed to like fit in your pocket. But it also has like this hand crank, which is kind of like a new a new button. Um, so instead of just like having like your 
your up, down, left, right, mm-hmm. BA, start, whatever. You also have this crank that you can play. That's but interesting. I think whenever I first saw this, I was a little bit skeptical because there are new handheld gaming systems coming out, but there are like all these subscription mm-hmm. based things that are like you stream games, but Playdate seems cute because it has what they're calling seasons which is like 12 a year of games so like a game each month yeah so like if you buy this game system at launch you get 12 months worth of games and so like once a month you'll have a new game and it's kind of advertising them as either being long or short or complex or simple and i kind of I kind of like the idea of that, that you buy the system and then you have 12 months of games and it's $150. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at some know. of the footage right now, more than like old Game Boy, it looks a lot like, like the, the game and watch series, if that makes sense. Like the really old school, um, sort of like line drawn, uh, Nintendo games. Yeah. But like Chris, yeah. like it, it looks nice. Um, but I'm optimistic about this. I kind of like the idea that there's this um, not super cheap but not super expensive game system mm-hmm. that has these original games that aren't aren't just streamed. Like, they're all originals for this game system. And it's saying, like, okay, yeah, some are going to be simple, but, like, once a month you're going to have a new game and it's going to have something to offer you. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be something you've never seen before. And then, like, once you have it, you have it. So I think it's kind of the idea of like a new, a new game system. But um, it's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, looks cute. It's interesting because the the conventional wisdom was like, even as recently as two years ago, was that phone games had killed the dedicated handheld platform. That every everything that you wanted to do with a handheld platform can now be done on an iPhone or an Android phone and that the idea of a dedicated Game Boy or something was dead and that's why the Vita died and that's why, you know, the Switch is handheld in the sense that it's part of a large actual console and so it's, mm-hmm. it, you know, it has a dedicated, has two dedicated functions rather than being a dedicated mobile platform. Um, and that doesn't actually sound like the case. It sounds like people are still doing innovation in that field and trying to make it work which is pretty cool yeah and i i like the idea that like once a month there's going to be a game release and like maybe with your friends you'll be able to talk about a game release i think that maybe people are looking more for that Mm -hmm. uh that collaborative aspect of gaming especially like not as it specifically relates to like co-op games but like people want to share games with each other i think yeah and i think that it's cool to look forward to a game release i think that a lot of people maybe played sekiro because other people were playing yeah. it and wanted to share that experience even if it's a you know a single player game i think that people like sharing games with friends as we become more maybe necessarily isolated in our mm-hmm. homes that at least online we can share games with friends and i like the idea that maybe there's a simple fun game maybe it's just cute that we can we can talk about other friends. Game of Thrones is done. We thank Christ. Oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, we don't need to get into my Game of Thrones opinions on this show, but I have been the number one hater since day one of that. Of that. And I am I, I'm, I'm glad that it's over, but I was, I was really happy that everyone, everyone was united at the end in hating that yeah. piece of shit. <laughs> 
Well, I, and we don't have to get too into mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, but like I watched season one and I was like, oh, I love this. And I, what, I read the first book. I read the second book. I read the second book before the second season came out. And then like uh, this season, I didn't care. I was like, I don't think this is something I like and I'm okay with not watching something just because I feel yeah. like I should be obligated to. And I think that a lot of times people do keep consuming media because they feel obligated to and they don't want to miss something. Yeah. I mean, at some point it becomes a snowball effect going down the mountain and you just can't stop it. But I definitely got the impression I didn't watch it, but I did consume it, if that makes sense, because everyone was talking about it. I must have seen like, you know, at least a fifth of each episode in various Twitter gifts and videos and memes um, over the course of the season. It just felt like everyone making that show had checked out. Like if you have a Starbucks mm-hmm. cup in the shot one episode and then the very next episode or the episode after you have a water bottle in a shot, like uh, maybe it's maybe it's good that the show's ending because obviously somebody doesn't want to be there. Um, and yeah, it seems like the fans checked out. Like, because I've never seen anyone spoil things that much as much as they did the last season. Like, just live tweeting everything, yeah. which was honestly fine with me. Because like, the only things that you could spoil in the last season are deaths, and at that point, I didn't really feel like any of the deaths were meaningful. It just seems like okay, well, some people are gonna die, so we'll figure out which ones die and which ones don't. Yeah. Anyway, really glad that those guys are immediately going to fail upwards into their own Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, um, we'll, see, we'll see who dies in Star Wars That'll be now. great. Uh, also, <laughs> their show about the Confederacy. That's also going to be awesome. Is that still happening? It, there has been no word either way since February, but it's still on production calendars. Um, I'm hoping, hoping that HBO sees the light and or Weiss and Benioff see, see the light and that – their three Star Wars films are going to be enough on their plate. They don't actually have to do this insane commentary on the second civil war from the point of view of the slaveholders. But who knows? I don't know. It Um, seems like that was like maybe what, you know, Game of Thrones was leaning towards. It's like, okay, well, colonialism seems pretty good now so let's see what else we can do yeah it's, i mean if if the last season of game of thrones is the proof of concept for these two guys doing genre work on their own um i, I guess i'm gonna have some star wars movies to hate um because it does not sound like it's one thing to be me and i've always disliked the series so i'm obviously biased but people who loved the series were deeply unhappy with the last two seasons and not just because uh one of the characters heel turned in the stupidest way possible um which and we don't need to get into it but there's a difference between the politics and foreshadowing of a decision and the actual narrative execution of the decision and um mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like what they did with daenerys was dog shit um and i don't look forward to seeing that in a media property i care about but I've been taught repeatedly that maybe I should just stop caring about Star Wars recently too. So, yeah, um, I feel I feel okay with that too, and I think that's a new feeling for me. Is that like it's okay that Star Wars was very important to me as a child, but it's okay that I don't really care about the new ones, and that there's a whole there, you there's know, other there's a whole generation yeah. of people who love the new ones. So yeah. like, good for them. And it doesn't have to be made for me, but hopefully it'll be made well. Um, all right, so our games this week. Um, do you want to go first? Like, so what we've been playing? Yeah, what yeah? we've been playing. 
Oh gosh. Yeah, I can talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, excitingly, uh, Overwatch anniversary has started this week, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. It's the third anniversary now of Overwatch. I started playing it in the beta and very quickly liked it. Um, but I think this is like my history with Blizzard games is that I'll keep playing them even if I'm aggravated with them. Um, and it's so I've been playing Overwatch again recently, which I hadn't been playing for a while. Um, but I don't know if I don't know if I've referenced this before, but my boyfriend lives in Australia, mm-hmm. so we play a lot of video games together. Um, no, that's a time skip. Playing... Wait, you, you live in America, right? Yes, yeah, I so. live in Louisiana. Um, so we've been playing Overwatch again together. There's only so many games that we can play with the latency difference. Um, and so he's very generous to play (laughs) Overwatch with me. Um, but that's why I've been playing it again a lot recently. Um, and I've been very aggravated playing competitive. And so uh, that's just kind of the thing with Overwatch is like, that's one of his biggest problems is whenever you play competitive every single season it restarts and you have to do placement matches and it just places you exactly you do 10 placement matches and it places you exactly where you were last season (laughs) so i'll play with my boyfriend and we'll play all the games together and then we'll place at two different two completely different places because we'll just like place exactly where we were last season um and it's it's such a grind like even if you win every single game it takes hours to do anything Mm -hmm. and it's just it's really not the game for me because it just takes so much time. And so, like, it's bizarre to me that so many people want, like, a a campaign in Overwatch. Yeah. Like, this big narrative. Because, like, I came to Overwatch from playing TF2. Mm-hmm. And it's like, TF2 didn't have that and no one really wanted that. Like, there was, like, you know, like, there was the meet the meet the whoever. Meet the medic. The meet spy. the pyro. Yeah, and they were just, like, fun flavor to the game. Like, people liked the characters because they liked flavor to the game, but no one really expected it to, like, tell this grand story. So it's weird, I think, how people interact with Overwatch because I like the characters' flavor to the game, but I don't need this campaign. I just need them to fix <laughs> fix what they are already doing, which is a good competitive character base, like a hero-based FPS game. Yeah. I've, I've played a little bit of Overwatch. I'm atrocious at multiplayer games um both for my own psychological reasons i get incredibly tilted incredibly quickly and i'm not fun to be around when i'm not having fun on those and because i'm just really bad at shooters um so i i I played a little bit of it it didn't go very well um and uh, (laughs) i decided that because it's one of these things where i'm getting i'm getting older i'm 33 now or i will be 33 soon um, and that's not old, old, but it's certainly on the other side of the the time investment gap as well as the, the fast twitch reflex gap, where mm-hmm. if I'm going to be playing against kids, college kids who are able to spend four or five hours a day on these servers playing these games, I'm just going to get my ass kicked every time, uh, mm-hmm. especially because I'm not intuitively good at the uh, at the multiplayer uh, shooter lifestyle because I only get to play an hour or two a week of them. Um, and I, I get my ass kicked every single time I do. So, you know, it's, it's just been a, a gradual realization that I, that I, that those kind of games aren't going to be for me. Um, I guess I'd prefer, I'd like a PVE overwatch just for 
um, just to see, just to experience those characters in a way that wasn't <laughs> infuriating. But, you know, I, I understand that it's just not what people come to the game for, and it's odd that Blizzard would try to, try to push that. Um, and I don't think that they are. They do, like, a PvE event, like, a couple of times a year, and it's never very good. Mm-hmm. And I think that it definitely could be good. I think that a Overwatch raid would be more interesting than a Destiny raid, and it kind of brings that same thing, like a class-based... Mm-hmm. Because I came to Overwatch from WoW, where like I really, really miss raids. I really miss bosses. Um, I miss that PvE element, especially with the team. But I think that they need to perfect what they've gotten before something as ambitious as a campaign, which I don't think that maybe people realize how ambitious like adding a campaign mode would be yeah. to Overwatch. So yeah, I've been so as I said, I, I don't like multiplayer games that much. So I've been playing a single player game. Um, uh, it was released this week. Uh, it's called A Plague Story: Innocence. Uh, so it's a Plague Story colon Innocence, um, and it's from Asobo Studios. Uh, let me make sure I got that name right. Asobo, yeah, Asobo Studios, uh, who are mainly known for doing uh, licensed products. I think they do a bunch of the Pixar games. Um, uh, they occasionally get contracted out to do support for like ubisoft products um uh like and support being like they'll they'll help touch up art assets and you can see that that's where their where their skills lie because it's a beautiful game uh it's a first it's a third person character stealth slash action game but it's not really an action game uh it's mostly a stealth game uh mostly an escort game you play a um a teenage girl in 13th century france um, at the time of the Black Plague. Uh, her name's Amicia. It has some real Game of Thrones shit where the opening is the Inquisition come and murder- coming and murdering your entire family, um, and you have to escape. Um, and so it's it blends a lot of good sneaking around set pieces. So you, the only weapon you have is a sling with stones. Um, and you get a bit of uh, help here because a stone to the head of an unarmored man is a one-hit kill, which is, you know, you're going to mess someone up if you sl- if you hit them in the head with a stone from a sling, but you're not going to always one-hit kill them. So you're getting a little bit of help from the game there. Um, and then with that as its basis and some sneaking mechanics with high grass and stuff like that, it becomes sort of a puzzle game. It's not about... Um, being able to have good enough reflexes to headshot these guys every time because the game will auto-lock onto these guys' heads. It's about getting them into a place where their helmets are off or dealing with helmeted guards that you can't hurt, get, you know, moving them around the map so you can sneak past them. It's about interacting with the environment and figuring out environmental puzzles. And when the humans aren't the enemies, the enemies are the plague rats. And there's some really cool... You know the zombies in World War Z, how they sort of flow? Uh, in World War Z, like in the book. Yeah, like or in the movie. You know, that like that wave of zombies. Um, mm. Well, it, it was a big thing with it where like they're all CGI and it's like this human tidal wave coming yeah, at yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, I do remember the movie. Um, yeah. The rat swarms are like that, but with rats. Um, and it's it's really good. Like it's like it, – so there's not, there's not individual rats. I mean there are individual rats, but they don't feel like a, a group of individuals. They feel like a tidal wave or a single large – you know, sentient organism that's just flowing towards you and around you. Um, and obviously they're scared of fire. 
Uh, so you, you need to be positioning uh, lip braziers and torches and, uh, you know, set, setting wheat fields on fire to scare them off. Um, and obviously, if you touch them, it's like the floor is lava. You are dead. Um, yeah, this visually sounds very impressive. What does this look like? Oh, it, it's, it looks fantastic. I mean, it's, it has to look fantastic because it's a, it's a $45 game. Um, and I, I believe it only has about eight or nine hours of gameplay. Um, it, it, that's perfect. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. It's, it's, <laughs> it, and it looks amazing. It's a beautiful looking game. Um, and the, the story is engaging. It's well written. You've got um, a good care group. Like as you go on, you pick up more and more kids. So uh, it's you and your little brother to begin with. And then eventually you pick up uh, the teenage apprentice of um, – the master alchemist that you're looking for. And then eventually you pick up two thief kids who run with you as well. Um, and those interactions begin to layer and those relationships deepen and change. Um, I have a feeling there's a betrayal coming up from one certain character. I won't say who. Um, and that their story isn't going to end particularly happily. But uh, so far it's been a, it's been a real breath of fresh air. Uh, it's, it's, a lot of the reviews have been saying, and I agree with it, that it is a bit easy. Um, and I don't necessarily mean easy in terms of the skill you need to execute, but some of the puzzles seem a bit too simplistic. Uh, there's, there's not enough large, um, intricate set pieces that take a lot of time and effort to figure out the way that you might find, you know, later in an, un an Uncharted game. Uh, the one really big set piece that has caused some confusion and, you know, me having to look at it from different angles, I also have a NPC companion with me who, if I, you know, dawdle for too long or look, seem if I go through game actions that make me look confused, like just running around um, to different places without doing much of anything, they will gently nudge me towards the solution which isn't something I always want, but I don't want to give it up because the character interaction there is the main reason I came to the game. Um, so even, th even though I don't necessarily need or desire the NPC to walk me through things, as they're walking me through, they're building that character relationship in a way that I do like. So it, I, it's not a walking simulator or an or anything that you might denigrate that people don't like that way. And I, and, I love, and I love those games, too. But it is a very uh, cinematic experience. Like, if you had a cinematic mode on a game, this is, this is what it is. And uh, I, I've been enjoying it a lot. Because, um, honestly, I don't, I don't need every game to be difficult. Um, especially if the gameplay mechanics are achieving their artistic goals of what they inspire and how I feel about the game, even at the expense of the difficulty. Yeah, so you feel like the puzzles still contribute oh, yeah. to your feeling of the game. Yeah, and, and like there's, you get choices at some point. Like at, you can, at one point you get captured, um, and they intimate that they're going to do bad things to you and bad things to your brother, um, and that you're not going to survive, and that he's being ransomed off back to the Inquisition. And you get released. Uh, you, you break out. You get your sling back, and you have a choice at that point. And it's not like a choose from a menu options choice. It's a how do you play the game choice. Your choice is between murdering your way through all of these guards, who none of whom at, at this point have helmets because they're inside their camp. They've got their armor off, all that sort of stuff. You can 
murder your way through the guards, and it's a fairly straightforward path, fairly safe. Uh, if you're paying attention to sight lines, you can do it without too much effort. Or you can take the longer path around and spare them. And depending on what you do, the characters will react differently to you afterwards. Um, the person who released you is a bit unnerved if you kill everyone, uh, as she is right to be. But I did kill everyone because I didn't like them. And, um, <laughs> and at some point... That was your right. It was. And also, you know, it's a, it's a give and take thing. There were, they were watching stores of... Because there's crafting in this game, too, uh, for your, your equipment. Uh, and they were watching supplies I needed. You know, and they weren't walking away from them. And instead of spending five minutes, you know, positioning the guards perfectly so I could go in and grab the alcohol and the cloth and the twine I needed, I just slapped him in the head with a stone and he died. <laughs> this is exactly what I like to hear. Like, this seems like a pretty ambitious game, and especially if it's in under 10 hours. Like, that's that's the perfect game to me. Yep. <laughs> it's something that tells uh, a cohesive finished story in 10 hours. That's what I would like in a game. Oh, and it looks like it's going to be that. I think I'm near the end now. I'm in chapter seven. I think it might be 10 chapters long. I'm not sure. I haven't looked it up because I don't want to be spoiled. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it feels like it's reaching the, the time right before the climax. Um, so, I, yeah, it's a really good game. I like it. A Plague Story, colon, Innocence. Uh, I think it's on Steam and maybe PlayStation 4. I'm not sure. I don't... Yeah, uh, that's what I'm seeing. You know. It looks gorgeous. Uh, it looks like it's on PlayStation 4, too. Yeah. I will definitely be checking this out. This looks cool. This looks up my alley. <laughs> All right. And I think that's that's us for this week. Um, yeah, I think that is the patch notes. That is the patch notes. Uh, we will be back next week, of course. Trev will be here. Uh, Liv, thank you for coming by. I hope we... Uh, you, sh you should sit in more often if, if it fits your schedule. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was absolutely a pleasure. I'm happy to be on the patch notes. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Good night. All right. Good night. Good night.